The nail in the coffin! Welcome to the Nail in the Coffin. This is episode number 12. I am Tom Valentino and I am joined as always by Travis Uli. Trav, how you doing tonight? Never better, Tino. Episode 12. It's flown, hasn't it? You know, it really has. I had to do a double take when I said that. I wasn't even sure. I would not have guessed that high. I know. It's uh, that's pretty cool, though. I, I'm yeah. uh, I'm pleased. Absolutely. Hey, did, you, uh, did you get your Powerball tickets? I did. I got, uh, I got five numbers for myself here, which I'm hoping hit, but... Worst case scenario is the pool at work hits with like I'm splitting it sixty ways. <laughs> yes. Chipped in on that, you know, couldn't couldn't be left out. If 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 fifty nine people quit tomorrow and I'm sitting there like a chump, couldn't live with myself. Yeah, you know when I uh, when I used to work at the News Herald, that was always the you, you almost felt obligated when the newsroom did the big pool just because yep. it was like, uh, if you don't, you don't want to be the last guy you left. You don't behind. want to be the guy. Right. You're, you're basically buying insurance. So absolutely. <laughs> and for $2, you know, good a deal as you'll find on that type of stuff. You can't beat that with a stick. No kidding. Hey, you know, speaking of winning the lottery, I kind of feel like we did with the Browns for once we had uh, this afternoon. We are recording on Wednesday night, by the way, but, um, uh, this afternoon, white smoke from the chimney in Berea. We have a new head coach. I feel pretty good about it. Hugh Jackson, what do you think? Uh, I think two things. One, it's it's relieving to finally be the team that uh, you know doesn't have to wait till everyone else hires someone and then pick from what's left to get a guy that is fairly well regarded. We're not taking like option number nine or whatever the hell it would have been. Uh, after sifting through people that took other jobs and people that just flat out weren't interested. Um, so, so that's nice. It, it, it kind of leads you to believe that um, this, this whole, for, this whole new structure that they're going with might not be as weird as we all think. It's if it sounded appealing to a guy who seemed to have a pretty good track at both the, uh, both the giants job and the 49ers job. Although the giants job has now been filled by, by the assistant, but um it's 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 encouraging to see a guy who's in demand actually actually say you know what I'll go with Cleveland. Yeah, I uh, it, it's nice because it, it just from a psychological perspective like you said it's it's nice to not be the team that's just left over when all the other jobs are filled and all the candidates that were left hanging or somebody's finally like okay, I guess we'll go to Cleveland. I mean, um especially with like the Mike Pettin hiring the last time, I think his daughter on Twitter literally said that like uh, it's Cleveland, but I guess it's pretty cool. Yeah. I believe, I believe the quote was uh, my dad got a head coaching job. It's the Browns, but still. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but just beyond that for the actual practical reasons, I think it's really great to get this settled this early because now you've still got a lot of teams out there that are trying to fill their head coaching vacancies, and the Browns have got a head start on them to fill out the rest of the staff. So you've got a better shot at drawing in some excellent coordinators and the, and the rest of the coaching staff. A lot more good qualified candidates to pick from. Oh, yeah, no question. Um, 
I'm trying to recall the one guy's name, the assistant that just uh, a lot of people were saying could, could have been likely to follow. Um, oh, to follow him to Cleveland. The guy, I think he went to the Dolphins. Vance something. Vance yeah. Joseph. That's it. There, there um, you go. A lot of people were saying if if you know they'd announced this hire a day earlier, uh, the Browns maybe could have gotten him because he has a really good uh, relationship. So, I mean, that's kind. Of, I guess that's maybe me being glass half, half empty, I suppose, because they still got the guy they wanted, and yeah, like you said, there's still plenty of time to go out and get good assistance. Um, you think any chance that they keep any of the guys that they asked to stay around? Well, I, I was going to say, I, I, I'm glad you threw that caveat in there because the vast majority of the staff, it seemed like, was asked to leave. Um, I, I can't even, like, who besides DiFilippo did they even ask to stay? There were four um, of them, but there, I, I can't remember the, the one, other three. I can't remember the one. There was one I know who just took a job with the Saints. Um and his name was escaping me at the time. Um, I know, thank God, O'Neal was not one of them. <laughs> so so our defense might look like an NFL defense next year, which is reassuring. Yeah, I'll put it to you this way. We were 3-13 and this year, so I'm not going to be heartbroken if anybody doesn't stick around. Right. It's clean start. Let, let's, let's roll with the new crew. Um, if he does happen to like somebody, okay, great, but... You know, I'm not I'm not married to that idea. Yeah, just kind of doing my homework and learning a little bit more about Hugh Jackson. I really like a lot of what I've heard. Um, You look into his history, his coaching history. I mean, he has been around the game for a long time. He was a quarterback for a small school, Pacific. And I think he's been in coaching since 1987. And he's worked with a lot of really good quarterbacks. Uh, he was really instrumental in the early days of Joe Flacco with the Ravens. And Flacco went on to win the Super Bowl there and had a great postseason that one year. Um, had a really big role as an offensive coordinator in the development of Andy Dalton. And, um, I mean, say what you want about the Bengals, but, I mean, they're a perennial playoff team now. And, um, you know, even the one year that he was a head coach in Oakland, he basically revived Carson Palmer's career. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he was, I mean, I think he was kind of the catalyst, but behind that, that trade that a lot of people thought was pretty ridiculous at the time. Right. Or I think they gave up two first rounders for him. Um, so he, he took a little bit of heat for that, but if you look at it in hindsight, it's not, it didn't really turn out that poor. I mean, it did for Oakland because they, they dumped him like a year later anyways, I think. Um, yeah, but he got him to eight and eight that one year that he was there coaching. Yeah, and if you if you look at his time in Oakland, it's kind of hard to figure out why they cut bait with him after a year. Um, that well, I think they went four and twelve the, the year after that, and it's not like they were busting at the seams with talent. So no, the eight they, and eight they made the Super Bowl. They made the Super Bowl in two thousand two, and since then. That year that Hugh Jackson was their head coach, that was the only year they've even gotten to 500. Well, I thought they were 8-8 eight eight the year before he got there, too. That might be true. They definitely have never had a better record. They haven't yeah, been over 500. Yeah, but, but still, I mean, it's not like that was a team that you look at, and 8-8 and eight and eight was probably about their ceiling. Um, but, he, I mean, he got a lot out of guys, 
and somehow put together a respectable season, which the the following season that roster kind of proved to be what it was. So I think Oakland kind of botched that a little bit, and I think that's kind of uh, – they've rebounded nicely. I think they got a pretty good team in place right now. Yeah. Um, they could potentially have, have a pretty decent future lined up for them. But in terms of how they handled that, I thought it, it looked like they probably had a pretty decent coach that they needed to ride out a little bit longer. Um, so, I, I mean, it's hard to call. Yeah, he got fired after one year, but it's hard to even call that one year like a like a failure or a letdown, I think. Oh, sure. Um, you know, the other thing that I had heard today, they had on 92.3, they had Andrew Hawkins come on uh, around the drive time segment. Yeah, I heard that. He That guy... That guy can talk. Yeah, he was. He uh, sounds really good on the radio. Yeah, Bull even said as much and tried to talk him into going into sports media after his playing career afterwards. That's the guy that, yeah, I didn't. I didn't listen all the way to the end, but that's the guy that's that's going to be able to. Uh, he'll be able to get a job, I'm sure, after he's done playing. Yeah, uh, but one of the things that he said that really stuck out to me was talking about how what Jackson will do as a coach is he's. I think the the phrase he used, he's a game planner. He'll really evaluate his personnel and then develop a game plan that's going to maximize the strengths of his players, which was just music to my ears because I, I think one of the big traps that uh, among the many failures of Brown's coaching regimes in the past, I, that has not really been the case, I don't think. Uh, the most glaring example of that is when the Shermer – staff tried to shoehorn in the West Coast offense. Um, but even last year, uh, the, the season that just wrapped up with, um, you look at the quarterback situation, and I just felt like they were a little bit rudderless in terms of their starting quarterback was Josh McCown, their backup quarterback was Johnny Manziel, and the skill sets and, and the, the playing styles of those two guys couldn't, couldn't have been be more, different. more different. So it's like... Right. How are you going to build an identity around an offense and build your, your offensive identity around a quarterback when the guys that you have playing that position, you it just doesn't fit. It's like, and especially when you have to like pinball back and forth between them because guys are hurt and doing God knows what else if you're Johnny Manziel. So it just, it seems to me like we have a guy that's going to be willing to, to adapt and flex and, and, and make the most of what he has. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I don't know. I feel like the offense was kind of confusing this year. Um, it, it seemed to move the ball pretty well, um, regardless of who the quarterback was for most games. I mean, obviously there was a handful there at the end where they just couldn't do much of anything. But, um, yeah, they seemed to move the ball pretty well. They just couldn't score any points. And obviously that's a little more important. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, it'll be nice to see what he does, and I think, I think he'll be the real, the first really like legit, innovative offensive mind that we've had in a while. Um, some people might say Shanahan. I'd probably disagree with that, but um, overall, it'll be it'll be nice to, set to have a offensive minded coach calling the shots. And I, and from what Hawkins was saying. It seems like a guy that really knows how to talk to his players. He knows how to maximize them. He'll tell them what they need to hear, but um, if adjustments need made or things need to be changed slightly, he's more than willing to do that, which I think is probably one of the things that we've been missing in the last few regimes. Out of all the coaching changes and all the hires 
uh, all the hires that they've had over the past 15 years, can you think of another coach that they've hired that has gotten as much universal praise as uh, what um, what the Browns have gotten by hiring Hugh Jackson here? No, it's it's almost like shock from the national people. Like, uh, oh, uh, the Browns actually did something good, and we don't know what to do now. Um, I think Butch Davis was pretty pretty well received at the time, but I mean that's a long time ago. Um, certainly nobody recently. Um, so that's definitely a relief and sort of refreshing to see, I think. Um, but no, you're right on. Um, it, it, it's hard to find anybody who thinks that this isn't a really good move for the Browns. So hopefully that along with the other organizational changes, hopefully it's a really good fit and, you know, we're not just setting ourselves up for more of the same. So the last time we had talked, they had only named Sashi Brown, um, the executive VP of personnel. And we had not heard that Paul D. Podesta was coming in as the chief strategy officer. And we didn't really have a full idea of just how deep the Browns were going to go with this whole analytics based approach to their uh, player acquisitions going forward. As we start to see more of the pieces in place now, how are you feeling about what they put together here? Well, I think my I've definitely done a bit of a 180 from last week. I'm definitely more optimistic. Um, the fact that I don't know, it seems to be taking shape. They got a guy that was pretty well received. I think we I think more than um, the analytics standpoint and the uh, like front office these these high up executive positions. You and I were probably both a little more concerned with who's going to be coaching. Um, and I think the GM thing might, is probably secondary to coaching personally, I think, um, just because I think that's been where the biggest gap has been, um, just in terms of the on-field product. I don't know that, uh, I think the coach has the most ability to make an immediate change there, because I think if you look at the roster on paper, it's not horrible. There's some things that need to be improved, obviously, but, if you have a guy that can really come in and maximize those types of guys that you already have, that's how you're going to see the most immediate change. Um, so I think that's refreshing in terms of how, how much I like this new analytics leaning uh, approach and what Podesta, the Podesta and Sashi Brown are going to going to do before we really know the role. It's still too hard to say. I think um, it's interesting. And I kind of said this to you last week and it's funny because the reason I supported the the change in that in that approach was that um, we were just kind of in a position where nobody really wanted to come to the Browns, and they changed their their structure and they they come up with this sort of new uh, innovative way that they're going to approach the game, and all of a sudden they get one of the hottest candidates for a head coaching job. So I guess if that's the result. Um, I'm all in, I guess. I, I can't argue with the results so far. Nothing they've done has been what I would call an egregious or really bad decision. They've got a good coach in place, and I think if you can build from that, that's that's a great start. You know, for as much praise as they got today for hiring Hugh Jackson, that was really, I think, a 180 in terms of the perception 
of what they had done up to that point. Because it seemed like last week, especially once they brought in Deep Podesta, it wasn't necessarily a knock on him personally. It was more of a, this is a guy that's been in baseball, and now you're going to have him overseeing strategy for your football operations. Like, what the hell are you doing there? And, and this whole analytics-based approach is something that is not being done anywhere else. And there was a lot of skepticism about that. And it, even at the time, as I was listening to people say that, it didn't really bother me that much. And I guess the reason for that is I just I felt like the, the people that were saying that, it felt like taking a safe stance as if saying like they know this is a radical outside the box approach and it has no track record of success in football and the Browns have no track record of success really as an organization since they've come back and the people that were being put in place before today didn't really have any sort of a track record of success. So I think as an outsider, whether you're a a GM being quoted off the record from another organization or you're uh, an analyst with a national media outlet, really, I don't think you had a lot of, there there didn't seem to be a lot of upside in sticking your neck out and saying like, yeah, the Browns are really doing something great here. Um, Yeah, I think on the surface, I think when it first came out, it was basically because no one really knows how these roles are going to be defined and how much, uh, how much control these guys are going to have and how much they're actually going to consult with the football guys. I think a lot of to, – to most people, and rightfully so, it just kind of looked like they're hiring baseball guys to do football things or hiring business guys to do football things. Sure. Which historically, you know, that's that's not usually a recipe for success. It's, it's not a recipe that really ever even gets tried, honestly. Um, so it, it, it sort of looked like the Browns were out, th- out thinking themselves. But I think with with the hire today, that I think that view pretty much does a complete 180 because because of the way that it's working now with uh, Hugh Jackson reporting straight to Jimmy Haslam. I think um, just the dynamic that they have is going to be so much different than what anyone is used to. But they're also going to have really strong football minds in the room when those decisions are being made to where. Um, you hope, obviously, this is all hope and conjecture at this point. But you hope that um, that those those analytics folks, those people who are crunching numbers and, and looking at most things that way, um, are consulting the football guys as well, and not just making these decisions in a vacuum off of numbers on paper. Right. Yeah, and I think even right from the outset, we had said that this whole thing was going to hinge on them finding a strong football voice to balance things out. And I know initially some of the reporters around town, I I heard Grossi say this on KNR, his line of thinking was that they were going to want a a younger, unproven coordinator type coach that they could bring in and really lean on heavily or, or, you know, kind of force their, their viewpoints on as a front office. And I really felt like as soon as we heard that, the head coach, whoever it was going to be at that point, was going to be reporting directly to Jimmy Haslam. That, to me, said this is going to be somebody that really is going to have a lot of power, and I said that last week. And I still think that's going to be the case, especially now that you bring in a guy 
with the credentials of Hugh Jackson. And he's a guy that, as you had mentioned earlier, he was the one that really pushed and, and made that trade for Carson Palmer happen out in Oakland. So he has a experience, I guess, in dealing with a situation where he can be involved in personnel and, and really having a strong voice in the room for that. So um, I guess it still makes me a little nervous, just the, the whole thing, because this is definitely something I think that's not really being done a lot elsewhere just yet. And there's a lot of stuff and a lot of things that uh, need to be proven here. But I I like the the, the, the people that we have in place. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited to see where this goes, which I can tell you that the words Browns and excited were not two words that uh, were being used in a single sentence by me at any point in the past year no. or so. It's been quite some time. And, and I'll say this, I think – Personally, I think probably the biggest reason for this this organizational change and this in this trend sort of away from the traditional owner, president, GM, coach, uh, tree, for lack of a better term, I guess, order of authority is that they needed to do something different, I think, to attract someone that that they really wanted. I think – if you if you if you're going out and you're looking at if, if you had Hugh Jackson in here and he was going to have to report to a guy like uh, Ray Farmer, there's no way he's coming in. Right. There's no way. If if you put him in that traditional position, you're stuck choosing from the unproven guys who, uh, no offense, but nobody else really wanted. Um. And and like you said, you're kind of making them form to whatever you want, whatever your preferences are. If you're a Jimmy Haslam or a GM, I think they probably identified, Hey, we need a really good coach in here. We're going to have to throw him um, a little bit added authority. Maybe we put restructure how this is a little bit, change things around, try something new and see if we can find the right guy who a is the right coach, but also wants to be a part of something different and new and, and and try it out with us if we give them a little bit more leeway. And I think that's what that's probably exactly what they're doing. And I can't think of any other reason that Hugh Jackson would have uh, taken this job over a couple of jobs that it seemed like he had a lot of interest in. Sure. Um, and, and for a lot of reasons could have been considered safer places to go, especially I mean, the honest, Giants. Every, every other, every, is there, is there a job that's less – if you look at just from a coaching standpoint and the roster that you have, is there a job that's less attractive than the Browns right now that's open and available? Yeah, I don't I mean, so. it's hard to make a case. Right, right. Every other every other coaching position – and I might be wrong about this. I might, I might be wrong. I'd have to look at all the ones that are open, but – of, of the ones I can think of off the top of my head, they all have a guy at quarterback who has had success. Now, maybe he's had a couple down years like Kaepernick or um, Eli Manning, who actually had a pretty decent year last year. They just didn't seem to – I don't know what the, what the issue was exactly. I think it was more defensive than offensive over there. But you have something immediately that, that you can work with, and you don't have to make an immediate immediate change at quarterback – with the Browns, it's pretty much already a foregone conclusion that Manziel won't be there. 
who knows if what they do with McCown, what his role will be if they draft someone or if they ride out McCown for a while. Who knows what the case is. But if you look at overall talent on the team and in terms of a, a, a team that you can probably turn around quickly, the Browns are probably the least likely. All right. Well, so you mentioned uh, who knows what the case is in terms of what they're doing at quarterback. What, with this hiring and what we know about Hugh Jackson's background, do you have any sort of inkling in terms of where they're going to go from here? Do you think it makes it more likely that they're going to try to draft somebody at that number two spot and swing for the fences and try to find a franchise quarterback? Do you think they're more likely to try to sign somebody or bring somebody in from another team? Well, I, I, I don't know if there's really anyone out there that they can sign. Um, I've heard some people say um, – throw Kaepernick out there actually um, suggesting that Hugh Jackson liked Kaepernick previously and wanted to draft him. I think the, uh, the same year that they drafted Dalton, I think they were in the same class. Right. Um, and I've heard some people say that, Hey, he really liked Kaepernick in that draft too. And he's kind of on the way out and stuff. But in my head, if he liked Kaepernick, he would have just taken the San Francisco job. So, so I don't, I don't, I don't know if I put a whole lot of weight into that. I, that, theory that's a but, great point but i mean yeah yeah you can take a job and hope that you can trade for a guy or you can just go coach that guy and keep him but that could also be a thing we're talking to san francisco maybe the leadership there is dead set on getting rid of him who knows um uh, but i digress it doesn't who cares about san francisco <laughs> um but no i truthfully I, it's too soon to really have a read on that. I have to think that he's going to make a move, whether it be drafting a guy second if he really likes one of the two, George, uh, Paxton Lynch or uh, Jared Goff, but it's too soon to tell. I think and you're not going to get a read on him until draft day. I think at this point they're probably going to follow the, the NFL standard of keeping tight-lipped about what you're going to do. Yeah, we'll see what the numbers say from our uh, our new number crunchers in um, the personnel department. Yeah, they'll probably say, hey, take one of these two guys, and then they'll follow last year's example and or two years ago and probably draft like Cardale Jones second. So, I have a theory on where Cardale's going. If, if really? you I, have you and I talked about this? No, but I, I, I'm excited to hear it. You're not going to be. No, no, not Pittsburgh. <sighs> It makes too much sense. I you know. tell me another team that already has a quarterback that has a very similar build and similar arm strength to Cardale. Uh, quarterback. Oh, I know. It makes sense. Yeah, Sean. I mean, it, just for everybody listening out there, this is the theory that's been kind of rolling around in my head for pretty much most of the season, especially as Cardale's draft stock dropped throughout the season as he went to the bench for Ohio State and it became clear he wasn't going to be a first-round pick this year, this whole scenario started unfolding in my mind where he slips to the middle rounds and a team that what do you, has a, what, do you th- what do you think in middle round? What do, you, what do you mean when you say middle round? Third or fourth. Okay. And okay. Uh, I, I, I could just see a scenario where a team that already has a quarterback in place who has a few more good years left but is definitely on the back nine of his career – goes the Aaron Rodgers route yeah and they they drafted a quarterback that's a little bit of a project 
that is somebody that can sit for a few years and develop and learn under the established star that they have now and then take the reins in a few years. It's exactly what happened with Aaron Rodgers sitting behind Brett Favre for a few years. And you just look at, they could just seamlessly, uh, from a, a physical tool standpoint, make a transition from Roethlisberger straight to Cardale. And on top of that, if there is any team in the NFL that has had a pipeline running in straight State. from Columbus, it's sure. it's the Steelers. So yeah, they, it just seems like it fits way too well. It's an it's 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 definitely an interesting thought. It, it wouldn't shock me. I'll ask you this: if you're the Browns and say they take I don't know Bosa second, um, or they don't they don't go quarterback second, would you want would you be interested in the Browns ever taking Cardale? And at what round would you consider that a reasonable choice? I don't want him here, to be honest with okay. you. And I I think he can be a good pro quarterback, just given his skill set. Sure. But I I don't want him here in Cleveland, just because I think the hometown hero uh, coming back to Northeast Ohio. Just a little too distracting for him. Yeah. yeah, That's a whole added layer of stuff that he doesn't need to be dealing with. And I gotcha. Sure. I can see that. Yeah. Especially he's kind of, he's kind of, shown to be uh, prone to distractions and susceptible to that type of stuff. Not to say that that he's, I don't know, like a numbskull or that he's, that he's dumb and he makes really bad decisions because historically, since that, that one tweet, like his freshman year, he's pretty, he's been a pretty model citizen, I think. Yeah, um, but playing the whole hometown hero is a lot be... harder than LeBron James makes it look. Right, and there's and, and yeah, all of a sudden there's a lot of a lot of jackasses hanging around who are pulling him all these different directions. When he like like you can say he he needs to be doing his job, studying, getting better at the position of quarterback. So if and when the time comes and he's ready to play, um, I'm with I'm with you to an extent on that. I'm not sure he has the has the uh, mindset or the maturity to handle all that additional pressure that would come with being in Cleveland. Yeah. All right. Anything else on the Browns? Do we, I think overall we feel pretty good about where they're at. Cautiously optimistic. Is that the fairest way to, I think, I think more than, I don't know that there's even that much caution in my optimism. Uh, It's the Browns. So there always needs to be some, but I don't know. It feels like, it feels like for the, like you said for the first time this is a, this is a coaching hire that i'm 100% satisfied with me too and I, I don't know that that was ever the case even with butch davis yeah any thoughts on any thoughts on this this open gm position i i think it's a gm only in name if it even gets to that point i don't think whoever they bring in is going to be a general manager in the traditional sense that we've right. understood what that position is elsewhere around the league. I think it's going to be kind of similar um, really to more like what Mike Lombardi was in his okay. one year here where technically he got the GM title, but he was functioning more as a, a personnel, a pro personnel guy. So do you think it's like, do you think it'll end up being probably my hunch is that it's probably going to be some probably slightly younger up and coming type personnel guy who 
isn't necessarily quite ready for a GM position, um, but is pretty in demand and pretty well, uh, pretty well revered around the league or something along those lines. And I don't have any names off the top of my head, but I think it's going to have to be somebody a little bit more under the radar than that, because if, if anybody has got real buzz around the league, I think they're going to hold out for a job where they have a little bit more power. Okay. I can see that. I was I was thinking more along the lines of someone who's not really going to get a GM job anywhere else. They're not going to have that look, but they can sort of get sort of get that title maybe before they deserve it. But yeah, you might be right that uh, a guy like that who knows eventually that time's going to come might just hold out and wait for it uh, when it's the right the right role in the right position. And I'm okay with that. I, I yeah, think if I they agree. they can get somebody, it doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, the smartest GM in the room. Um, I, I think if they get somebody that's just competent and willing to fill the role that they envision and can report up to, to Sashi Brown and Paul D. Podesta and go out and really find the type of talent that Hugh Jackson is looking for as those three guys are filling out the roster. And I really think it's going to be those three that are kind of going to be working collectively to make this thing happen, somebody that can identify talent that to fit those needs. That that's what we need here. Yeah, and I'm, it would, I think it'd be very interesting to sort of just to sort of get a behind the scenes look. I, I sort of wish uh, that two year rule or whatever for head coaches on Hard Knocks didn't exist because I think it would be fascinating to see the dynamic that these. I guess it'll be five individuals after they hire a GM, the sort of dynamic they have when they're discussing personnel specifically, just to see which roles each person plays in the, in the decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be even better to be in a position where you know what that discussion looks like elsewhere and just see how different it's going to operate here. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's probably going to be, very different from what the other 31 teams in the league are doing, but that that might be what the Browns need. Who knows? Yeah, I was going to say, more importantly, it's going to be different from what they've been doing for the past 15 or so years, which is music to my ears. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no kidding. That's, that's the one thing that you and I definitely agree on. What they were doing before wasn't working, so trying to go a different direction, great. Go for it. Let's see how it works out. Yeah, give it a shot, man. What the hell do we have to lose? No question. All right. So let's uh, let's shift gears. Um, speaking of things that are putting us in a good mood, how about our basketball team? Yeah, how about those Cavaliers? Uh, we have not talked about them on here since uh, before Christmas. And as we know, they, they ended up losing kind of an ugly game to Golden State on Christmas Day. Since yep. then, though, they've not lost, I don't think. Right? Gangbusters. Nope. No, I, I take I that back. It's... They the the next night at Portland. Oh yeah, they got whew, blown out. That was but since then. <laughs> since that one, right. they've been strong. Um, no, I was watching the game last night. Uh, they came out a little flat. Getting Kyrie back, he's still finding his finding his groove. He's had a couple huge games. Last night, he hit that that thirty footer for whatever reason. Um, it's it's it seems like it's starting to come together. Uh, might be premature. This little trip they got here now with uh, 
San Antonio, Houston, and then Golden State again. Um, will probably give us a better feel as to where they actually are. Um, but regardless, I don't, I don't think if they say they lose to Golden State, I, I still don't think you can read too much into it uh, because it's still not a finished product. Um, those games, they're not going to matter until June. We could keep saying that. Um, but it'll nice. It'll be nice and interesting to see how they come together. Because personally, I think San Antonio might be a bigger threat than Golden State. Um, so, with how efficiently and how well they've been playing, I saw the other day like Tim Duncan played a game the other night. They won by like fifteen or twenty points, and he didn't even score a point, which was the first time in. I have to assume it's probably the first time since he's been in the league. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that for sure. Yeah, unless but, he went out of the game early with an injury at some point. I can't imagine that's ever happened before. Right, exactly. And it was some crazy streak that that uh, so many games since they, since it's happened. And I don't know if it was his entire career or what. But the way that those two teams are playing, I really think it's a three-team race. And luckily, I don't, I don't think the Cavs are far behind in that race right now. I think they're probably a little behind. But um, overall, I... I I think that they, uh, I think they have the guys. It's interesting. Lately, it's been like a different guy has been stepping up each night. Last night, uh, it seemed like Mozgov had been hearing all the talk about maybe he's going to get traded, um, and he really stepped up. I thought he played really well. Um, he was all over the place, dunking the ball a whole bunch. Seemed like he was really into the game. Um, Love hit a few big shots last night. Noticed if which. I think it's kind of we'd kind of gone away from having him on the floor late in games, but he was playing the whole fourth quarter and all overtime. Uh, and Tristan was on the bench, which was sort of interesting, but they were sort of playing that slowed down type of game. Um, and he was he was hustling a lot. He hit the first two baskets overtime and stuff, and that's nice to see. I think that's the one thing that I'll pay attention to all season is just to make sure that he's staying engaged and isn't getting down on himself. Uh, he yesterday he missed two shots on one possession, like missed a th- missed a pretty open three, got the rebound and missed a layup, um, and it seemed like he got down on himself, but he came back and hit a big shot right after that, and, and so that's nice to see too. So I think the way that they're playing right now, on both ends, their defense I've noticed has stepped up a whole lot. The offense is starting to come around to where we expect it to be. So it's it's. I think they're starting to look like the team we expected them to be all along. All right. So you gave me about 17 different uh, jumping in points to work from here. Let me <laughs> pick, <laughs> pick one and go. Let, let, let's talk about the game last night. Like yes. you had said, they it started off kind of ugly. And I tweeted something out after the game. I said they did so many little things right in that game. I was really glad to see them win. And uh, a friend of mine, a uh, former co-worker over at the News Herald, Nick Carabine, I believe one of the first uh, followers we had to our Twitter account, by the way, uh, at The Nail Podcast, if you're on Twitter. Um, shout out to Nick. Uh, he had said, uh, did they really do all the little things well? He said they thought he thought they played terrible. Um, and he had cited poor ball movement, bad shooting, uh, terrible defense, and he was really impressed that they were able to come back and win. And really, what I had meant by that was, yeah, they, they did get off the terrible start, but there were little things here and there that really kind of gave me hope for um, the big picture going forward. And 
like you had said, just after the disaster that Mozgov had had over in Philadelphia in the previous game where he had that terrible three-pointer that had LeBron uh, staring daggers into the back of his head, walking the entire length of the floor, uh, going into halftime and not even playing at all in the second half. To have him come back and really contribute in a meaningful way against Dallas, I thought that was huge. And Kevin Love, again, you know, really, really, really rough shooting night, but he was still hitting the glass hard, and he came down with quite a few offensive rebounds, um, especially down the stretch. And that was something I don't think we really saw from him last year. No, I mean, there there were several times last night where he was tipping the ball out, and after after he shot, I mean, he was, he was still spending some time out at the three, but after he shot, he was attacking the basketball uh, yeah. to try and get it back because he knew he missed it. Yeah, and, and that was something that, you know, like last year it felt like if his shot wasn't falling, he could very easily become invisible out on the floor. And last night that was really not the case, and it was really encouraging to see after that um, just the way he kept sticking with it and finding other ways to contribute that eventually, uh, I think it was late fourth quarter and then definitely in overtime, uh, he hit some really big baskets finally. So his confidence had not been shaken, and I think that was really important. I Um, think that's big, yep. Another thing that I saw that I really liked, they, with about 25 seconds to go, Cavs were down by a basket, and they they needed a score there to tie up the game. And, you know, they got the ball to LeBron, no real surprise there. And in situations like that, you see a lot of times LeBron likes to drive and then hit that hard stop and hit the go for that step back jump shot. And instead, in that situation there at the end of regulation, he just unleashed hell on the rim and yeah, delivered and how, one of the most ferocious dunks I've seen all year. It was great. What was with the what was with the officiating? Yeah, you that texted was, me about that last night. And, infuriating uh, me. He had he had a um, a play maybe a minute before where he got hip checked and they called the foul. It was it was around the three point line, but he was going towards the basket and he got he got bumped by the defender and took two steps and laid the ball in. And it seemed like no one even considered the fact that it was continuation, even though watching it. That's, yeah, he gathered that's the exact play that continuation that the continuation rule was invented for, and there have and, been longer, more egregious uh, oh, continuations that worse. have been allowed than that. Yeah, it was like they it was pretty textbook into what. And, and if you don't like continuation, that's fine, and you you don't think that it should be a rule. Okay, I I, I can listen to that, but it is, and that's the play that you're supposed to call it on. Like it's pretty clear as day, and then. He goes to the basket for, for that dunk at the very end with like 20 seconds left, I think, when he finally made it and clearly gets fouled. And no one seems to even like consider it again. It's like I can't recall a time that um, a superstar got as many – like so many calls missed against him. Yeah, there was uh, that call in the last uh... – 30 seconds or so of regulation. I think they said that was one of six calls. So the league, just a little background, the league has these reports that they issue for every game where I believe it's the last two minutes of regulation and then if overtime is played, they will 
announce if there were any calls that were missed. They file these reports the day after games. And for the game last night, the report that came out today said there were six calls missed in the final two minutes of regulation and overtime, which that is a lot. That's a lot, yeah. And it's and there and if you were watching the game, they weren't like subjective. They weren't like close little ticky tack fouls. They were pretty significant. On the one, like on that on LeBron's dunk, it, it very easily could have impacted the shot and made him miss it. Like if if you look the way it wasn't like a clean flush. Um and the fact that they just stared and kept playing on, it's like I get you're at the end of the game and you don't want to impact the game, but you have to call those. Yeah. And I guess it's, it's nice that the NBA acknowledges it, but I I assume that they always acknowledge it and it, it just doesn't ever get any better. It's frustrating to me, but I'm, well, I'll I'll fully admit I'm complaining about the ref guy. Added to the list of little things that it was encouraging to see last night that they were able to play through, that kind of stuff, especially when you get into how the fourth. How good is Shump? How <laughs> how good is Shumper? Another another little thing. And did you read uh, Jason Lloyd's uh, notes from uh, his thoughts from the game? No, I missed it. I didn't have a chance to. All right, so I think I had mentioned Jason Lloyd's thoughts that he publishes on the uh, Akron Beacon Journal's website, uh, Ohio.com. Um, in a blog format, he always, I think I'd mentioned this to you in our lost pod, uh, the yes. original episode eight. Yes. Um, but it's one of my favorite things to read cause it kind of gives you a lot of behind the scenes stuff and, and he'll really go in depth on certain aspects that you can't really get into too much in a regular game story. Um, and he went, uh, in today's notes on, uh, his thoughts from the uh, the Dallas game, he went real deep on what Shumper did to make those big defensive plays, the first one against Dirk, and then the one against Darren Williams uh, towards the uh, end of overtime. And, yeah, just to, to hear the way his mind works and, and just the level of detail and preparation that goes into it where he's counting dribbles and, and, and timing it out in his head, knowing exactly when Dirk's going to go for that play and, and how he had said that, trying to face guard Dirk Nowitzki is a completely worthless endeavor because he's going to shoot right over it and, and he doesn't even need to see the basket to, to get a good shot up. So he right. knew his only move was to swat at the ball. And again, he just had it timed out perfectly and was able to, to reach in and, and make that play. That's fantastic. Oh yeah. And that's, I, I think it's probably one of the more, I think he's probably one of the more underrated guys in the league in terms of what he can really do for a team. If you look at, we can look back at that, the trade that brought him and Jr. here forever and just shock at how that actually took place and how we got both of those guys. Um, But him probably way more than Jr. Like that's the kind of guy that you would think would fit perfectly into if, if Phil Jackson, you know, wanted to build the Knicks like, like he typically would have with, with Chicago and whatnot. Um, he almost looks like the perfect guy that you would want on that team because he's not going to command the ball on offense, but he has a huge role on defense and his attention to detail and the way that he prepares and sort of embraces that role, which you never find guys embracing that role as a, as a perimeter guard defensive stopper. It just doesn't happen. Um, it's, incredibly valuable for this team. Um, and I think we're probably 
even still, even after last night and after what we've seen so far, he does that all the time. Um, we, I'm not sure we fully appreciate what he really brings to the table. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. Another thing that I thought was really uh, one of those little things that was nice was looking at overtime. Did you notice just how much better the ball moved and how many more guys got involved at the offensive end in overtime compared to the last overtime that game they played against New Orleans last month? I mean, in comparing, I can't necessarily say I remember enough from last month to compare. That, but that no, you definitely, game, noticed, you definitely noticed a ramped up offensive uh, sort of, I don't know, about efficiency, but just the way that it was operating was exactly how you want it to operate. Yeah, like the, just the... That New Orleans game is the one that just keeps sticking back in my mind because it just seemed like so many of the trips down the floor in that game in the uh, overtime period was just LeBron uh, oh, so running, the, running the four along the baseline and, and trying to do too much. And they ran some really nice sets. There was a play in overtime last night where LeBron was on the wing uh, near side uh, uh, closer to the main camera and Kevin Love had kind of popped into the into the lane and sealed off his guy and posted up right in front of the rim. And LeBron zipped the pass into him right in the post, and, and Love got the layup. And it was just like, I hadn't seen them run that little wrinkle all year. And to be yeah, able to break was, out. There, was, such a a, few. there yeah. was a few that stood out to me yesterday that like, oh, that's, that's one I haven't seen yet. Um, there was one... Um, is it the one where LeBron was facing up with the guy? And I was, I was probably 90% sure that he was just going to settle for a jumper from where he was probably like 17 feet out. Yeah. And love worked beautifully down by the basket to, to get in front of uh, his defender and probably six or seven seconds left on the shot clock. You're I'm thinking LeBron's about to chuck this and he just fires it right down to love who somehow just managed to get wide open. It wasn't even necessarily, I don't know that it was a drawn up play, but it was another example of love, I think, saying, "Hey, I can, I can get into a position here." And he got literally wide open, and LeBron fired it right to him, and it was an incredibly easy play um, that I don't think you've been seeing out of him a lot. Yeah, it, it was just, it was nice to see that, and um, just so many contributions up and down. I mean, you just look at how many different guys, and we didn't even mention what Delhi did in the first half when they were down nine and kind of teetering back towards digging a huge hole. And all of a sudden he comes and hits uh, two, three pointers in the span of six seconds and took the deficit down to three. Well, I think he got the second three pointer because he stole the ball. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Correctly. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was all him. Yeah. And, and the way he's been shooting this year has been very refreshing. Um, like we said, Mozgov stepped up last night. That's great to see. Um, but, yeah, I said it yesterday um, when I was texting you during the game. Every guy made a play at some point. Every guy had a chance to do something late in the game, and they all did it. Yes. Which is awesome. Awesome to see. So, Seabone, if you're out there listening, that is what I had meant by all the little things that uh, added up to a win. Yes, oh. stop hating, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so going forward, they got two more games on this trip. Uh, Thursday night, they're going to be in San Antonio. Big, big rematch from the, I think, what was the regular season game of the year last year in the whole league when Kyrie dropped 57 on them. 
I'm sure San Antonio is going to be geared up for that game. I don't think they've lost a home game since then. They better have. In the regular season. I'm sure it's not that hot in San Antonio. I was going to say they better have the air on, but (laughs) I don't know what. I I assume it's not. No no skullduggery with the uh, air conditioning units. Although at the time, I totally condoned it, so (laughs) not going to. Not gonna, not gonna harp on them too much for that because I liked it at the time. Yeah. So from there on Friday night, this road trip finally wraps up in Houston. Um, I'm just gonna warn everybody right now: the Cavs have had a couple of situations this year where they've kind of punted on games, just given the circumstances and for several reasons, which I'll list out right now. I think that is a very strong candidate to be another one of those games. Number one, if you look historically, they never seem to play well in Houston. LeBron doesn't seem to play well in Houston. Uh, it's going to be the second night to, of a back-to-back, and it's going to be the sixth game on a road trip with Golden State lurking in Cleveland on Monday. Um, and it's coming off a, 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 a not just any back-to-back. It's the Spurs the previous night. So if that Spurs game, especially if it goes down to the wire and is a knockdown drag about affair like it was last year, uh, I could see absolutely the Cavs kind of um, cruising into uh, Houston and just letting whatever happens happens. So yeah, don't I panic if that game turns into a dud. I will be in the house next Monday, so I'm okay if they take a night off and come in refreshed. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was one of that was one of the tickets I got for my season ticket package. Yeah, you're not going to um, miss that one. <laughs> so no, that one we're definitely going to make it to. Very um, nice. That should be exciting. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the queue, and uh, hopefully uh, they make us proud. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to be down there in a few weeks for the game against San Antonio, the, the rematch. Uh, that's a Saturday night game. So uh, I've had that'll be the first time I've ever seen the Spurs. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I just found out on Monday uh, I will also be going to the game against the Suns a few days before that, um, thanks to our good friends at Giorgio's Pizza. Beautiful. I, <laughs> I got bored one day uh, and uh, entered a bunch of uh, the contests that were listed on the Cavs website and um, actually happened to win one of them. So, yeah, I won some tickets to the Suns game. So, nice. Good yeah. for you. Yeah, shout out to Giorgio's. There we go. <laughs> Open uh, for sponsors, Giorgio's. Yeah, yeah. We, we have uh, uh, an opening or two, and we would be happy to give We you have a, as many openings as we have willing I'll do 55 minutes of live reads every week. I, didn't... I don't mind. You ever listen to KNR? It's 24 hours of live reads. <laughs> it's good to be alive. <laughs> For Yeah, if you're Rizzo, it's very good to be alive. <laughs> Take your Joby's, kids. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. We're, anything else we want to throw before we uh, get out of here? Uh, no, that's about it for me. All right. Well... Good day to be a Browns fan for once. Uh, a good day to be a Cavs fan yet again. feel like uh, Cleveland sports fans are in a good place right now. It's nice. Absolutely. All right. So, hey, listen, just a reminder, as always, everybody out there, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes if you haven't done so already. Um, we're also on Stitcher and uh, any other uh, podcast listening app that you might like. And all of our past episodes can be found on our website, thenailpodcast.com. So for Travis Uli, I am Tom Valentino. This has been The Nail in the Coffin, and we will talk to you again next week. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? 
I mean really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.